uh, St. Peter, of course, greets them, ushers them in. The preacher, he goes in, he's like, you know, there's this, this row of houses. It's kind of a pretty simple stack shack kind of thing. So uh, you're welcome. That You can pick a place in there, whichever one you'd like. That'd be just fine. And then they walk a little bit further, and he points out to the lawyer this huge mansion and this spectacular location. And the preacher can't take it. He walks back over and he says, what in the world's the deal with that? Why would he get that great big place and I get this little place? And St. Peter says, this place is full of preachers, but this is the only lawyer I know of in this whole joint right here. So, you know, it's always fun to take a shot. I usually take a shot at Texas because they can take it. If you're a lawyer, John, Flanders, wherever you are, others who are lawyers, you know I love you. You know that. And God loves you very much. (laughs) Okay, let's uh, take a look at what is going on here. We've been studying all summer. If you've been a part of the process at all, and if this is your first time, we'll try to jump you right in because we've been studying the Beatitudes. But as you see in the title, in the bulletin, it's kind of a reversal look. And let me explain that to you. First of all, uh, this is pretty common. It's a, it's a summary. Matthew's capturing of the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of a bunch of things that Jesus taught. But there's a reason Matthew does it right at the beginning, and he starts off with what's kind of what's Jesus' core message. And he starts off with the idea of the kingdom of heaven. That comes all the way through. And so, actually, this is a description of kingdom of heaven type people. Now that's gotten to be confused to where this is kind of a job description or maybe even as one person puts it, one commentary says this, Matthew's Beatitudes, his ethics become ethical entrance requirements rather than eschatological blessings associated with the messianic age. I completely disagree with that. They're not entrance requirements. The, uh, the Beatitudes are not something, because if you stop and think about it, how many of these things would we actually aspire to have a part of our life? As I've said multiple times, how many times do you get up and say, actually, God probably wants me to mourn some more today? That doesn't really fit, does it? And there's several places in the Beatitudes that you say, huh, I don't know about that. Now, it's ethical, but it's evidence of kingdom of heaven type people. So what Jesus is trying to say is, blessed are these people, they are in a state of blessedness, and you recognize them. And what Jesus did was he took the people that were always the marginalized ones, and he rose them to prominence and said, these are the blessed ones. And that was a change from what had happened in Jewish history, in Greek history, in Babylonian history, in all of the world. Jesus flipped it over right at the beginning. And he says, look, I'm going to contrast what you've known from Jewish kingdom thinking, which was, who is the Jews' great king? David is the great king. And so they're expecting somebody's going to come and be like this. This is kingdom-like material. And what was the time frame in which Jesus was walking around? Who is the power in the planet at that point? Rome. And so he contrasts and says, I'm actually going to flip it over and I'm not going to sell you a kingdom that is like what David brought or a kingdom like what Rome promises in Pax Romana. It's going to look different from that. 
So then he teaches. So if you've got a Bible with you, an electronic version, old school paper version, what have you, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at a couple of things here. Actually, verse 8 is where we're going to start. And we're going to uh, just look at this simple verse. If you blink, you'll miss it. Uh, Matthew 5, 8. So we're this far down into the list, and we'll actually finish the list this summer. Matthew 5, 8 says this. Blessed are a state of being the pure in heart for they actually in the in the greek it says they god shall see the emphasis is on god not on the seen blessed are the pure of in heart for they shall see god now the next thing that we've got to ask ourselves if this is going to make any sense to us we've got to ask ourselves what are some of the main components of this very simple phrase that jesus has just said well, I think there are two very simple ones. I bet you could guess them. First, seeing God is kind of the outcome. And second, being pure in heart is kind of the state of being that results in seeing God, right? So what's the next question? The next set of questions are very simple. They are, what does it mean to see God? What does he mean by that? And... What does it mean to be pure in heart? Now, I don't know about you. The seeing God part sounds kind of attractive, although I've read some things about seeing God, and it's also a little frightening to me. I don't know about you. The pure in heart part sounds like I'm out. You know, maybe you. I mean, I've met some of you, and so your heart is as pure as the driven snow, right? Um, Mine struggles to be pure. So what is he talking about here? Let's see if we can find some things. The nice thing is, with everything that Jesus teaches across the line in all of these Beatitudes, he's referring to something that they already have heard about. He's going back into the Old Testament, into the history of the Jews, and he's bringing something forward. Because remember, he said to them, it's a little bit later in the sermon, but he says, I came not to eradicate, to get rid of the law, to get rid of our story, but actually to fulfill it. Nothing will pass away. So Jesus isn't undermining the law. He's actually saying, I'm going to reinterpret it. And if you've read it and know what he does, he actually makes it way harder than it was in Moses' time, the way Moses wrote it down. So Jesus is going to reinterpret some things, and this is one of the things he's going to reinterpret. So, what does seeing God mean? Well, let's look back. If you have your Bible there, let's go back to Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is going to give us an early view of a people of God seeing God. It's going to give us some early insight into this. Exodus 24, verse 8. The context is they've already crossed the Red Sea, and now they're on the kind of the foot of Mount Sinai getting the law and this is before the golden calf incident okay so you know in the time frame Exodus 24 8 says this Moses took the blood and threw it on the people now whoa wait a second what does that mean there has been a sacrifice that has occurred and Moses uses the blood to sprinkle the people. Now, I can't get it on everybody, as you know, just no more than I could get it on all of you right now. But it's the concept, the idea. There's a consecration. There's a purification. There's something that's going on 
that Moses does with the blood. It sounds kind of gross to us, but it's meaningful, and actually we're going to pick it up because we're going to go through Exodus into Psalms and then past Jesus' teaching to the book of Hebrews and learn a little bit more about the blood. So hold on to that. He does this. He sprinkles the blood, and he says this, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of his words. It's covenantal blood. This is a symbol. This is a a relationship between the people and God. Remember that. It's a relationship that's going on. And then it says, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of the Israelites went up and they saw the God of Israel. What is it like? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of lapis or sapphire stone, like the very heaven in its clearness. And he, God, did not lay his hand on the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What is that talking about? As they knew from standard operating procedure, if you see God or the gods, you're in big trouble. Big trouble. Because nobody's really worthy of that. This says they actually saw God and they ate and they drank and they went on with life and there was no punishment, there was no problem that came about from that. Now that, does that sound appealing to you? To see God like that? I mean, it sounds kind of appealing to me. But it caused me to ask this question about myself, about the Jews, about us. What kind of impact did it have? What kind of effect did it have? They saw God, but you know what happens? Not long after this, Moses goes up on the mountain. He takes Joshua with him. It's a matter of seconds in history. Moses goes up. What do they do? Down in the valley, they gather the gold and they make a calf. Did you ever realize that if you saw God in an actual physical manifestation it may or may not affect your heart. It didn't seem to affect their hearts. They were no different. They had also, by the way, seen all the miracles coming out of Egypt. All the plagues, they had seen. This is still the same generation. It's days removed. They had seen the sea parted and Pharaoh's army swallowed up and now the leadership goes up and sees God and they come right back down and they build an idol. What we shouldn't do is kid ourselves into thinking if we see God in a physical manifestation or in a miracle that somehow we would never ever uh, you know, go back to our old and former ways. The truth is, if the heart isn't affected, that seeing God is not very effective people often say today, well, the reason I don't believe in God, I don't know, maybe you've had this said to you. I have. I don't believe in God because you can't see God. There's no physical evidence of God. And I'm like, well, you know what? There's no physical evidence that your great-grandfather is right here right now. But you believe that your great-grandfather is still part of your story. And yet, even if you physically saw God, it doesn't automatically necessitate that your heart would be right. I don't know about you, but that for sure is a big part of my 
story. Changed circumstances do not automatically change our hearts. Do you know that 70% of lottery winners, 70% according to all the data that you can get from uh, you know, financial education and so forth, 70% end up broke within five years. What in the world? What happens there? What's going on? I'm going to ask the question of us. What happens that even if we see God, we have amazing things happen in our lives, we've seen the history and the story, we still are unaffected sometimes or not affected enough. Let's move on to the next passage and see what we can pick up in there. Uh, the next passage is Psalm 24. We were in Exodus 24. We're going to Psalm 24. A number of the Psalms talk about this issue. But if you'd like to go there, we're going to pick up right in verse 3. This is a Psalm that David wrote. Uh, it's the one that follows the most famous piece of literature, perhaps, in the history of the world, Psalm 23, in the book as the Jews put it together and was given to them. And it says this, Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who qualifies? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Interesting that the purity affects down to the heart in David's discussion. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. He doesn't swear deceitfully. He'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So they sought after God. They were the ones who would come and be pure in heart. And yet, right after David, we know how the kingdom goes. The kingdom splits, breaks up, civil war in Israel. Not long until actually they're carried off, off to captivity. There can't have been the majority of people who qualified in this. Some saw with their hearts, they were purified in their hearts, they sought the face of God. God said, come on up, take a look. But it, it didn't stick very long for them either. Uh, do we do this? Now, you may not do this. I do this. I often want to see God on my own terms. I want God to come and do what I want God to do. I want to see Him at work, even if I do, and I think sometimes I've seen God at work and I've acknowledged that. But I want Him to do that on my terms, not on His. I tend to say, well, this is what it will look like, God. This is what I'll be satisfied with. This is how I'll know, right? And it's the Gideon thing. You know, I'll put out the fleece and you do it on my terms. Is that what this is really all about? Do we really want to see that? A lot of times people look at us as the church from the outside and they say, see, the church is full of hypocrites and it doesn't work. You know what? In a lot of ways, they're right, aren't they? They're right. There's a lot of stuff that, that is not in line with a pure purity, if you will. And yet, does that automatically disqualify everything about it? It shouldn't. Back when uh, we had the issues that kind of built up, the big memory in my mind not too long ago is the issue with the police in Ferguson, where we said, boy, these police are given this job, this is what they're supposed to be doing, but they've overstepped their bounds, they've stepped over that. 
I wasn't there, can't speak to it directly, but that was the perception. But let me ask you this, is the world a better place without any police in it? There's no evidence to that at all. So just because somebody oversteps the bounds, just because somebody misses it, does not automatically qualify the truth. It doesn't automatically disqualify that, uh, you know, chaos is better. We don't need to see God. Or if God doesn't show up on my terms, then I'll do without him. Now let's connect forward into the book of Hebrews. Because this gives us kind of another look into this idea of the pure in heart seeing God. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, The writer here in the context, he's making an entire comparison between Jesus and Moses for a long period of time. And this passage actually pre-sets the stage for the hall of faith. If you've studied the Bible at all, you know in Hebrews 11 that God says, here are the people and here is their faith. This is what it looks like. In Hebrews 10, God said this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, remember the blood that Moses sprinkled we talked about? Here is the blood of the new covenant, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So somehow faith is involved in this. And maybe we miss that in those Old Testament passages. Maybe we went right over faith and thought it was just God needs to show up or I need to be more pure. And actually, faith is a big part of this. Our hearts then are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. That sounds like baptism. It sounds like a physical behavior. Well, then in, verse, in chapter 12, after he describes the people of faith, it says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, because he's talking about the fact that God is in the business of trying to bring about purity into our lives, and to do that, he disciplines us, and that is hard. If you've gotten a message that Christianity is, should be all easiness, you've missed the message. The message is, it's hard. It's a narrow way. It is. So strengthen your hands, your weak knees, you make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Listen to this. Strive for peace with everyone. Remember, peacemakers are in this list that Jesus has. Remember that? And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Huh. So the vision is connected to purity and holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no bitterness comes up, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, and he goes on with some more ethical things that are evidence of. Now, what's going on here? This, this author gives us a picture about this seeing God and this qualification and this purity that is a different view, and I think it's this. He's saying seeing God is not necessarily a physical manifestation, although God has the capacity to do that. 
it's also not necessarily a miracle or something that drops into your scenario that isn't directly God, but is evidence of God's work. It is a perspective. It's a view of the world. It's a view of the hard things. It's a way to look and to see. The pure in heart are not some people who are extra super qualified because they're so amazing. The pure in heart are those who have the ability to go beyond and see God even in the worst circumstances. Maybe even especially in the worst circumstances. That the pure in heart see God actively involved. They're not ejected from the circumstance. If you will, the obscurity, the, uh, the things covering the way, the things that block out the ability to see God at work, they've been removed. We, you're looking right now, especially if you're up higher, like in the grass area and above, you can see those mountains across. You see that burn scar from where the big fire was on Buffalo? I mean, it's so remarkable to see in the morning. You can see details. Just a couple weeks ago, <laughs> you could barely see the outline of our mountains because of the smoke that was in the air. There was stuff in the way. It would have been maybe a conclusion that somebody would have drawn using prior logic to say, I don't see any mountains. You had no mountains here at all. Did that mean the mountains went away because there was something that was a between you and the mountains? No, that doesn't mean the mountains went away. Any more than that means that God is not there. God is there doing His plan living into his heart for us. That's his theology for us. He's there, but sadly, the barriers are there, and most often, you know who puts the barriers in? This is my story. I put the barriers up. I say, well, I would rather believe in this. I would rather believe in science and what science tells me, and science can't measure God, so there's no God. I decided to put that in the way. Or I say, I don't like the outcome of my circumstances, so I think God has forgotten about me, so I leave that there. Or maybe I put it there. Or I say, God, I believe you're there, but, you know, there's just too many things. I got a bunch of things going on. I'm too busy. I've got stuff happening, right? We put the barriers up often. Sometimes they're as natural as they can be. Sometimes we're born into a sort of set of circumstances where there's barriers all over the place. I understand that if that is your story. If your story is that your family, your, your parents, something happened, there was abuse, there was abandonment, there was something terrible that happened, I understand that that is a barrier that is in place. And yet still, you have the choice... I have the choice to pull that barrier out of the way. That's what the pure in heart do. They clear the stuff out of the way to be, to be able to see God active and alive right there. Right in the middle of it. You may even think of it as uncluttered 
unmedicated. How many things do we do that medicate us from our reality? You know what the, the way to see God is, if you want to know, it's simple. It's have the courage to look your reality right in the eye and see God there. The courage to look at your reality. Don't ask God for relief like that's his best way he can serve you. Maybe it is. Don't ask God to resolve everything. Don't demand that God give you some kind of a miracle that miraculously, no. Even with your cancer. I know this is a different message. Remember, that's what Jesus was doing. The people who live in a state of blessedness, of, a, of awareness, of act, actually experiencing God, the kingdom of God, pay, the representatives of the kingdom, this is what they look like. This is what their lives look like. So we're approaching the next decade in human history. It's 2018. Get a little practical right now in your heart and mind. I took some inventory of myself this week and asked myself this question. What would it take by 2020 for me to have a 2020 vision of God? What would that take? What things that are currently obscuring, that are problematic, what are those things that I'm leaving right there? I haven't done the hard work. I choose to see them to block out God. What would it take for us to have a clear view to see God by 2020? This last weekend, I was, uh, this week, I was in Ohio with family. We're trying to make decisions about my mother-in-law who's going into dementia and, you know, We've all been in these circumstances, right? It's not a simple, easy process. But I kept asking God, give me some questions that are the right questions to look at the right increments as to what we should do and then help me to say those to the family in such a way that we can all come to some better conclusions here. And when I flew out of there, by the way, it was very helpful. It was very successful for us. But when I flew out of there, I flew bizarrely from Columbus, Ohio to Baltimore, Maryland to get to Denver, Colorado. Now, somebody who's a pilot explained that. Actually, I think I can because Baltimore is a major hub for Southwest Airlines, just like Denver is. As I'm flying in, I've not been to Baltimore much in my life. Maybe never officially. Been to D.C., but not Baltimore. When we're coming in, it's a very cool, big Bay with all kinds of historic things going on and things. But as we're coming in, there's those scattered little cloud things. You know what I'm talking about? It's not a big storm. It's not a great big huge wall. It's just little individual clouds. And we'd be flying and then all of a sudden we'd go in and behind the clouds and I can't see out the window to see the bay. And I'm frustrated because I want to see. And I'm like, well, if I had my say, we'd go lower already, so we'd be below these clouds, right? I would want to, but I kept experiencing that, and it kind of went on, the light went on. This, by the way, happens for us. 
sometimes those of us who are pastors, this happens, the light goes on. I'm so dense that I have to get my pocket recorder out and, and remind myself of it because I'll forget about it in another day. That's how dense I am. But I'm watching this and all of a sudden the light goes on. And it's like this is exactly what the obscurities are like in not being pure in heart. They're, they're there. They're fleeting. They're really not. They're more smoke screens than they are anything. And you have a lot of choices to make to affect that. So what will you do? And I ask that question of you. What will you do? Let's pray. Lord, we're uh, grateful today to have heard, not have a standard that's so impossible that uh, we have to meet some kind of a purity place that is only for the very few chosen spectacular ones, the Mother Teresas, even though she'd be horrified if we said that of her, but the people who we think are so pure, pure as a driven snow. Um, actually, purity is a true truth. It's an awareness. It's a clarity. And to see you is not necessarily to see your physical manifestation or your miracles, though those are great blessings to us, but they won't automatically affect us. So help us today, Lord, to uh, see right now, give us insight so that we may see even just one thing, that we could start on a journey to move out of the way so that we can see you alive and at work in our lives more and more clearly. Give us that insight right now. Every person who's asking that, I ask that you would give them one thing that's specific. And uh, we do this time of gathering because we love you and we want to declare you to be so amazing and worthy. Um, we want to trust you because those who trust uh, will not be moved. That's how we can get to this place of actually being one of those who live out the kingdom of God and are evidence of that in our world. Thanks for this amazing sermon and these amazing insights from Jesus and from your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.